Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everyone doing? I hope everyone had a great night. I had a great night. I hope you all got to see yesterday's video. Oh my gosh. If you're a Star Wars fan, yesterday's video was for you. And if you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to go check it out because uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I learned a lot about set decoration on Star Wars and how they did it and how the, how this gentleman created the lightsaber, how he worked on R2-D2. The first, the first version of first couple of versions of Archer D2, pretty cool stuff last night. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host tonight for the next hour, and I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. I'm just checking something here. Okay, we're 40, we're 40, 47, 45 strong up and down the state, and that means that uh, we're almost in every county in California. And so if you have something going on in your house that you think might be paranormal, we can help you with that. There's not an issue helping you with that. We can help you with that. And, uh, yeah. Let me do one more thing here. Um, the guest hasn't come in yet, so let, let me uh, do one more thing here. And um, let me send him a link in case he didn't get the right link. Because it's always a possibility that he did not get the correct link. So let me get the correct link. Anyway, um, I want to welcome you all tonight. Uh, we're set to have a great guest. <laughs> Doesn't mean we will. No, <laughs> wait, it's looking. But uh, uh, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. Uh, like I said, we'll, I'll be on for about an hour here. And uh, yeah, the numbers are looking good. So let me email this to Mark Muncy real quick. And yeah, hang on one second. Make sure he gets the link. He did confirm. And, uh, who knows, you know, a lot can happen between confirmation day and showtime. But in the meantime, again, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. And if you're watching from Facebook, be sure to follow. Uh, if you're watching from Twitter, be sure to visit our YouTube page. Okay. Or for even better yet, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Where you can get to our YouTube page. Just click on the video on the front page. It'll take you to all our videos on YouTube. We have more than 350 videos over there. And if you look down, once you're on YouTube, if you look down at the bottom right-hand corner, there is a ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. And if you click on that, that's how you subscribe. Right? The more subscribers, the merrier that, that we want. And uh, that will get you notifications of when the new videos come out. And it'll, you can also, well, you're going to have access anyway, but I mean, peruse all the videos that are on there because there's a lot of different topics on there. I just don't cover paranormal topics. Um, I don't cover paranormal topics because you're going to get topics from paranormal all the way through murders. You're going to get topics, you know, through, through law stuff. You're going to get topics through abuse, different, different things like that. that that's what you're going to get topics of. So, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of something for everybody, just like this gentleman I had on yesterday, who was a set decorator for the first trilogy for Star Wars, A New Hope. 
Empire Strikes Back, right? A lot of Star Wars fans out there. So it's a pretty cool story. And the gentleman won Academy Awards for his set decoration on Star Wars. And he won awards for his work on Aliens, too. So, you know, like I said, there's a little something for everybody over there on that site. Now, on the website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, again, you can access, you know, the current videos and all that. And you can also go back on the Blog Talk Radio stuff that we did because we were on Blog Talk Radio for 15 years. All right, you know, before we started this, what, two and a half years ago to do this format. So there's a lot out there, a lot you can access. Also, if you don't want to see my face, we're also on Apple and Google and all those podcast channels. iHeartRadio, you can find us over there too. So, you know, you can drive in your car, you know, do your laundry, clean your house, do whatever, and, you know, hear us that way. So there's all kinds of ways to hear us. And we're also starting to get going on TikTok. So what you're going to find over TikTok, if you want to see, like, what these things have to offer and not sit through the whole video, is the teasers for the videos over at TikTok. So you can see, maybe I don't want to see that one. Go to the next one. Maybe I don't want to see that one. Click, and you're there. So, yeah, head over to TikTok and subscribe. We're over at TikTok TikTok under California Hops. Anyhow, if you guys... um. Have any ghost stories you'd like to share or anything before we go on the air because i do encourage people to chat so uh please please make comments and stuff uh it's, it's appreciative you know there's all kinds of ghost stories out there in different places i'm going to be, be making a trip in february to a special place i'm not going to tell you guys and we're going to be going live from there i think we're going to be there three or four days and we're going to go live from there and we're going to tell ghost stories about this special place so that's going to be something that's coming up. And I'm not giving details until we get a lot closer to going out there. And I make the arrangements and all that good stuff. Okay? So just be aware of that. That's, that's going to be probably the second week of February that we do that. Um, we're going to start doing some travel videos. Maybe paranormal travel videos. We'll see. So we're going to start doing that as part of the channel. So we're expanding that way. I'm doing review um, product reviews. That's coming up. I got my first product review coming up. So that's something for you guys to look at. I mean, everybody loves to look for paranormal, uh, you know, paranormal equipment. So that's what uh, we're going to be doing reviews on for you guys. I've been I've been in this field for almost 20 years, maybe more. So I, I know a little bit about what works and what doesn't out in the field. So we're going to be doing that for you. So be looking for that as well. Let me check my email. Okay, well, maybe something happened with him. Haven't heard from him. I, uh, you know, he confirmed Sunday night, but I haven't heard from him since. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to prepare. Um, you guys know that I read from a paranormal themed book every Sunday night, and it's uh, the Lizzie Borden book. And since it's Lizzie Borden anniversary for the murders was last week, I think it was what was it August eighth? It's kind of it's kind of it's kind of time sensitive to now. So uh, what I'll do is I'll go ahead, if I'll give him a couple more minutes. If he doesn't come in or contact me, I'll go ahead and read from the Lizzie Borden book. We'll read another section of it tonight, okay? And, uh, yeah, because where we left Lizzie was, uh, Lizzie is going through her, uh, the main trial now. She, she went through the grand jury thing, and they found, they found the evidence suitable for trial. And so she is now on the, the, the official trial for her. For, for the murders. 
So uh, we can continue with that. Let me check this again. So get a couple more minutes with him. But uh, crazy. Okay, well, whatever works. I'm going to put a reminder out there tomorrow. Stan Dale is going to come back. Our good friend Stan Dale. We're going to be talking about Atlantis and the Garden of Eden. He claims to have found Atlantis and the Garden of Eden. And he's got some updates. So we're going to be talking to him tomorrow. And it's going to be a really cool show. Last time he was on, it was a really cool show. This time it's going to be a really cool show again, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that one as well. So something must have happened to Mr. Dale. So, I mean, I'm sorry. Something must have happened to Mr. Muncie. So I'm going to go ahead and open up my tablet. And I'm going to read for Lizzie Borden for an hour, okay. That's my backup plan. <laughs> I call it plan, plan L for, you know what I mean. Plan B and L for so let, let me power up the, the tablet. Yeah, um, he still may come on. I, um, I even email his phone number. Try to get his phone number and stuff and see what we can do with that. So, anyway, I apologize. I don't know what happened. We were set to go, and that was the end of that. So, let me get this powered up. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, yeah, it looks like something might have happened to him. So we'll try and get him on on another day. Not a problem. So I'm going to go ahead and read to you from Lizzie Borden tonight. So sit back, and if you're having dinner or whatever, you know, put your fuzzies on your feet. Get your recliners out. Lift, lift your legs up. Grab some popcorn. Just like I always say, popcorn and snacks, right? And I'm going to read to you from... Uh, the History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. In fact, we're in Chapter 31 now. Superior Court Trial, Day 4, June 8, 1893. I'm just going to keep this up in case he emails. So something went dreadfully wrong today. So, okay. Who knows? That falls under the category of who knows. Hosea Knowlton. Let me get this over my mouth here. Hosea Knowlton plowed on through the ensuing days of the trial. The weight of it pressed upon him. He was no less trouble on the home front. He had written to Attorney General Pillsbury three weeks before the trial began concerning his young daughter's health. Dear Attorney General, I find myself seriously and unexpectedly handicapped. Our little three-year-old came down with scarlet fever last Monday. She is doing well, but she is at the age when I would not trust her with hired nurses. For all the world has in the way of reward or glory. That means the home is broken up, children out. Mrs. K quarantined, and I, under the highest obligation to be home at nights for six weeks, so the doctor fixes the time. It isn't, isn't it wicked? Just at, just at this crisis. That was why I had to leave. I had to have Moody come to New Bedford instead of meeting him, as I originally intended at a point in Boston. Yours very truly, Hosea M. Knowlton, Saturday p.m., May 14, 1893. If Hosea Knowlton hoped his piteous words would fall in sympathetic ears, he was mistaken. No reprieve from his duties as head counsel in the accursed case was offered. Mr. Pillsbury merely wished him well at home, and it was back to business as usual. On May 17th, shortly before the Superior Court trial began, 
There were also letters flying back and forth between the DA and Pillsbury concerning Bridget's missing inquest testimony. Mr. Jennings and Mr. Adams asked for it, but were told neither Knowlton nor Pillsbury had it. As Lizzie's attorneys quoted from it during the trial, it was evidently found. Why they waited until only three weeks before the trial to ask for it is strange. Joseph Howard, that bombastic journalist with a flair for words, turned his pen, his pen to Lizzie's help as the trial continued on. Lizzie alone maintained an unflagging interest, her hacking cough serving to stimulate curiosity as to her condition. It seemed odd enough to see this little woman unattended by one of her sex to support her while she endured the merciless scrutiny of the old women and maidens who stared and stared as though she was a petrification or a mummy from the pyramids of Egypt. Parentheses. Emma was not at Lizzie's side, as old witnesses were to be called sequestered, who were to be called were sequestered outside the courtroom to eliminate their hearing others' recitals of the events. The cast of witnesses first on the scene. Day four of the trial began with a different manner of people attending. Mr. Howard commented that the country roads were alive with farmers' teams from early dawn hurrying toward the courthouse. There were two or three very pretty women and an especially attractive bride from Boston, but a large majority were vinegar-faced, sharp-nosed, lean-visaged, and extremely spare. It was a totally different audience from any that had gathered before. Lizzie's cough was once again remarked upon. She had been suffering from a bout with bronchitis, and after her fainting spell on Tuesday, kept a small vial of smelling salts in her lap. Dr. Seabury Bowen the first witness called that day was Dr. Seabury Bowen. Mr. Howard wrote that when he took the stand, he smiled upon Lizzie, who, wrapped in an outer jacket, seemed tired and presently hid her face behind the fan as her quick-eyed detected Mr. Moody's reaching for the faded dress concerning which is so much had been said. Dr. Bowen looked uncomfortable as he began his testimony. He had barely begun going over a few minor details about his relationship with the Bortons when Mr. Moody pounced. Moody. On the day preceding August 4th, did you see Miss Lizzie Borden at any time on the street? Bowen. I saw her after 6 o'clock, between 6 and 7 o'clock. Moody. Going in which direction? Bowen. Going north, going down the street. Moody. Going down? Bowen. Yes, sir. Moody. Did you at any time see her coming up the street? Bowen. No, sir. Moody. Let me check this real quick. Nope. Okay. Moody. By the street, you mean 2nd Street, I presume? Bowen. Yes, sir. Moody. Doctor, you testified at the inquest, did you not? The private hearing? Bowen. Squirming now. Yes, sir. Moody. That time was very soon after these occurrences that are under inquiry. Bowen. Yes, sir. Moody. Do you recall whether you said anything at that inquest as to seeing Miss Lizzie Borden coming up the street on Wednesday? Bowen, no, sir. I did not. Moody, perhaps I may aid you. Did you remember being asked a question and replaying in the matter that I state? Where did you afterwards see, see Mr. Borden? Did you see him Thursday? Answer, I don't remember seeing him Thursday. I might possibly... I saw him Wednesday walking along between the side street and gate. Lizzie I saw walking up the street, and I concluded they were all right, all of them. Bowen, down the street it should have been. I made a mistake. Rudy, 
It was a mistake then? Bowen, yes, sir. Parentheses. Bowen not only lies about his statement regarding Lizzie walking up the street, but as to the time he saw her. The emphasis on Lizzie's direction that day is that the drugstore where she tried to buy prussic acid Wednesday is up the street, not down street, where Miss Russell lives and where Lizzie was headed Wednesday evening. Mr. Moody realizes the significance of the direction she walked that day. Secondly, it was Dr. Bowen's wife, Phoebe, who saw Lizzie walking down street at six o'clock. She remembered the time because they had just finished dinner. Dr. Bowen now changes the time from six o'clock to between six and seven o'clock. Why? Because it is now known that Lizzie did not arrive at Miss Russell's until seven. Where did she go between six and seven that evening? Dr. Bowen has altered the time for her. In, in, in parentheses. Dr. Bowen states in his testimony that the sofa upon which Andrew Borden's body lay was even with the decor frame. Many have speculated that the location of the sofa in the room looks off kilter. It is not centered beneath the wall picture, and the head is actually several inches into the dining room door frame. This is how Dr. Bowen found it that morning. If it was moved, it was done so before he arrived, and the only ones there upon his arrival were Lizzie and Mrs. Churchill. Ample room is given between the end of the sofa and the door leading to the kitchen. Perhaps Abby's girth played into this placement. Mr. Moody gets the doctor to admit that Lizzie blurted out that father has had trouble with his tennis, and that Abby had a note and went out, within minutes of his arrival that morning. Dr. Bowen is then asked if he, has any if he had any conversation with Lizzie while Bridget and Mrs. Churchill were upstairs on their errand to procure a sheet to cover Mr. Borton. He replied, no, sir. The doctor then states he left to go and telegraph Emma. When asked how long he had been at the Borden house before he left to do that, he said he didn't know. In earlier testimony, Dr. Borden first said he arrived at the house that morning at close to 11.25. As he ascertained the timeline he needed to cover his tracks in later testimony, he changes his arrival to a good 10 minutes earlier. Why? To facilitate how long he was at the house before sending a telegram with an 11.32 timestamp. He was actually gone from the home during that errand longer than he wanted to allow, as it included a quick trip to Emory's and to talk to John Morris, who was visiting there. Mr. Moody asked Dr. Bowen about his first trip, about his first view of Abby after Mrs. Churchill tells him they had found her up in the guest room. The doctor testifies he placed, he placed his hand on her head and felt the wounds, and then took her pulse, finding her dead. This is a huge departure from his original testimony in the inquest and his statements to the police that day. When Moody asked him if he had originally stated that he thought Mrs. Borden had fainted from shock, he, emphat he emphatically denied saying so. Bowen also changes his original inquest statement from, I told them I thought they were both killed at the same instant, to, I told them I thought they were both killed by the same instrument. This is the same face, now that it is common knowledge they died almost two hours apart. The biggest showdown in Dr. Bowen's testimony came with Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody pressed him to describe the dress Lizzie had on. He reminded the doctor he had described it as a sort of drab, not much color to it to attract my attention, a sort of morning or calico dress. Moody hounds him to state what he meant by drab, or not much color, and, be, and Bowen dodges him. Finally, Mr. Moody shows Bowen the dress that Lizzie turned over to the police, as the one she wore the morning of the murders before changing into a pink wrapper. After many objections as to his questioning, and that he was, in fact, badgering his own witness, 
He pinned Bowen down. Moody, parentheses, exhibiting the dress. Does that appear to you, Doctor, to be a sort of drab or not much color to his sort of morning calico dress? Is that the dress she had on that morning? Bowen, I don't know. After several more objections and Dr. Bowen's refusal to say anything, but I don't know, Moody finally got his point across. Moody, what color do you call that dress? In his hand. Bowen, I should call it dark blue. Parentheses. The dress Lizzie wore that morning over the sleeveless Bedford cord was described by everyone else as light blue, with the exception of Lyman Lubinsky, the ice cream peddler, who remembered it as a dark blue, and the Bowens Bridget and the Bowens. Bridget was wearing dark blue, and Lubinsky claimed to see both women at the same time. Was it Bridget's dress he was describing? And in parentheses. Dr. Bowen was asked by Mr. Adams the state of shutters in the guest room where Abby's body was found. He said they were both thrown together loosely, shutters that fold the same as these do, but were made of wood. It was only the shutters on the north window facing Mrs. Churchill's that were partly closed. In parentheses it says, this is significant because Mrs. Churchill testified she was actually in the upper bedroom of her house that morning at the time Abby was being killed. The bedroom where she stood making the bed faced the Borden's guest room. Had Lizzie seen her and quickly thrown the upper and lower shutters in the parentheses? Dr. Bowen testifies as to the position of Abby's body and that he and Dr. Dolan lifted it to check the wounds. And the photograph was taken later that day may have shown her in a slightly different position, especially her arms. He was also, also asked about Andrew's body in the photograph, and he said Mr. Borden's head was lower in the picture, that the body had slipped down somewhat from when he first saw him. He testified to giving Lizzie bromel caffeine on Thursday to quiet her nerves, but increased it Friday to morphine sulfate, a dose that was doubled on Saturday. Mr. Adams, Lizzie's attorney, then got the doctor to testify to Lizzie taking morphine from that Saturday all throughout the inquest and her arrest. He elicited the information that morphine given in double doses can affect the memory and change and, change and alter the view of things and give people hallucinations. Mr. Moody, for the prosecution, was able to get Bowen to admit he only saw Lizzie actually take the dose twice. Bridget Sullivan Bridget is recalled to clear up a few things. Mr. Robinson, for the defense, begins by asking her about going down the cellar with the officers in the morning of the murders. She is asked, who those officers were. Bridget, Mr. Doherty, Mr. Fleet, Mr. Medley. Robinson, those three men, Mr. Doherty, Mr. Fleet, Mr. Medley. Bridget, I think they was. I didn't know them. I learned since that they were. Robinson, you know now? Bridget, yes, sir. I heard they were the officers. Robinson, well, you have seen the same men again several times. Bridget, yes, sir, but I wouldn't know them again until I was told they were the men. Mr. Knowlton, what did you say? Bridget, I wouldn't know the men again, but I heard they were the officers that went down with me. If you look, parentheses, if you look at Bridget's wording, you get the sense she knows she has been told a lie as to who accompanied her to the cellar that morning. It was not Officer Medley, it was Officer Mullally. They chose another name beginning with M to confuse her. Mullally is an officer who will play a major role in the upcoming testimony 
that he was the one who originally found the handleless hatchet the morning of the murders. They need Bridget to get him away from the cellar in the hatchet, was her testimony. Officer Midley did come across the broken hatchet, but not until three days later on Monday. End parentheses. Bridget sticks with her story that she only showed the men where the hatchets were, but did not touch them. Officer Molly stated she handed them down to him. Robinson shows Bridget in the cellar, uh, Bridget the cellar floor, and asks her if it helps locate where the hatchets were. She claims it doesn't help me at all. She says she doesn't know what was done with the hatchets after they were found. Never saw them lying on the cellar floor, and pretty much distances herself from any knowledge concerning them. She has asked about the dress she wore that morning. Parentheses, dark indigo, blue calico, blue calico with white cloverleaf figure. In parentheses. She later changed that afternoon to a blue gingham with a double border of white at the bottom. She couldn't remember what time in the afternoon she changed. She ended her testimony by claiming she did not see Lizzie cry that day. Despite Mr. Robinson reminding her, she said during her inquest that Lizzie was crying when Bridget saw her standing at the bottom of the stairs. Mrs. Churchill. Mr. Howard gave a concise description of Mrs. Adelaide Churchill as she stood to testify before the jury. The next witness was Mrs. Churchill, who testified she was a widow who rented rooms and did her own work, enjoying life as she passed through it and looked at it. And she looked at it again. When Governor Robinson questioned her as to the dress worn by Lizzie, she was inclined to be very positive to Lizzie's dress, which she described as a light blue and white mixed groundwork woven together, as it were, with a dark navy blue diamond figure on which there was no spot of blood or anything else. And then Mrs. Churchill dropped the bombshell. Mr. Moody, showing the dark blue dress Lizzie turned over to the police as the one she wore that morning. Was that the dress she had on this morning? The morning of the murders? Mrs. Churchill, it does not look like it. Lizzie's composure after hearing her longtime friend betray her in such a way is not reported upon. Mrs. Churchill also testified that Lizzie wore that day. I'm sorry, Mrs. Churchill also testified the dress Lizzie wore that day was was not snug. It had a box pleat or something down the front. It was loose. Mrs. Churchill further stated she never saw Lizzie cry that day. Mr. Robinson took over and asked Mrs. Churchill if the street outside the Bordens and her own home was a noisy street. She replied it was. He asked her if the windows to her house were open to that noise. You might not be able to hear noises in the house. She said that was true. Interestingly, Mrs. Churchill testified only minutes before that Lizzie told her she heard a distressing sound that, that morning coming from the house while she was out back, and that noise caused her to come in to find her father murdered. Robinson opened the door for the prosecution to point out a noisy street works both ways. No one walked through it. Mrs. Churchill recounted the events of the morning, all of which had been provided earlier in the book. She offered nothing new other than to describe Mrs. Borden as a very fleshy woman, not much taller than I am. She said Lizzie told her twice she wished someone would go and look for Mrs. Borden that morning, the second time after Mrs. Russell came. After Miss Russell came. She saw no blood on Lizzie, nor did she see another dress beneath the one she wore. Mr. Robinson asked Mrs. Churchill whether it was Lizzie or Bridget that spoke to her in the kitchen about the note, having received from a sick friend. Robinson hammers home that it was Bridget, not Lizzie, who said Mrs. Borden had a note and hurried off. Mrs. Churchill repeated Bridget's words. She was dusting in the sitting room and hurried off. She didn't tell me where she was going. She generally does. 
She stayed with Lizzie until 12 o'clock that day, until she finally went home. She said Lizzie was sitting in the dining room and had not gone upstairs when she left. A final follow-up question was asked Mrs. Churchill by Mr. Moody, which said, which shed some light on Mr. Jennings' effort early on to get some of the witnesses to testify the dress Lizzie turned into the police was the one she wore that morning. Moody. Mrs. Churchill was your, was your attention called very soon after this to the question of what dress Miss Lizzie Borden had on the morning of the homicide? Churchill. I was asked at the inquest what dress, and I described it. Moody, exhibiting, holding the dress. Was this dress called your attention soon after that, this particular dress? Mr. Robinson. Wait a moment. Moody. When did you see this dress? Churchill. Mr. Jennings showed it to me the first time that I saw it. Moody. How soon was that after the homicide? Churchill. I don't know how soon. Before the public hearing, I think, after the inquest. Moody. And did you have some did you have some talk with Mr. Jennings about the dress? Parentheses. I don't ask you what was said. Did some talk pass between him and you with reference to the dress? Churchill. Yes, sir. Mr. Robinson? For the defense. Did you happen to know that all the dresses, this one included, were taken by the officers on Saturday, the day of the funeral? Churchill. No, sir. I didn't know anything about it. Robinson. And had been kept in the possession of the government ever since? Did you know that? Churchill. No, sir. Robinson. Did you know it was produced by the officers at the inquest? Churchill. No, sir. I didn't see any dress at the inquest. Robinson. Well, you don't know about that? Churchill, no, sir, I don't know. Mr. Knowlton, do you mean to imply that was so? Robinson, I do not mean to imply anything. I asked the witness what she knows about it, and I'm not testifying. Parentheses, this is the first we hear that they kept all the dresses from the closet the day of the second search, after the sisters are back from the funeral. It was reported there were close to 18 dresses in the, in the clothes press. If the dresses are gone when Emma Borden's testimony, which was yet to come, about what occurred that Saturday night in the dress closet is highly suspicious. It is clear Mr. Jennings had tried to encourage Mrs. Churchill to recognize the blue dress Lizzie handed in as, as the one she saw her wearing that morning. Mrs. Churchill stuck to her guns and described the dress she saw. Of all the witnesses, hers is the most detailed description of Lizzie's dress that morning. End parentheses. While the tension mounted inside the courtroom, outside it was another hot day in Bedford. Joseph Howard, with typical aplomb, aplomb, described the temperature of the ongoings. By the side of the courthouse runs one of the busiest thoroughfares of the city, along with which ramsackle mill teams and rattle bag wagons incessantly roll. Crowds stand there all day long, birds sing, the cow moves, and a regular monkey and parrot time and a regular monkey and parrot time is perpetually on the go. No wonder the court declined to sit all day. No wonder that at this point a recess was taken and all hands rushed pell-mell to the dining rooms, where, in spite of the crowds, an appetizing and satisfying lunch was neatly and correctly served. Alice Russell. Word was out Miss Alice Russell would be next called to the stand, Mr. Hay Mr. Howard wrote. The interest all along has been intense. But the intensity was made vivid by the report that Miss Alice Russell, for many years, so to speak, wasn't friend of Lizzie Borden, who had testified and sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing else, at the inquest, had had her conscience nod some months ago, and had made up her mind to molt the, 
the wing of friendship and literally obey the mandate implied by the phraseology of her oath. To men and women ordinarily constituted such an experience as Miss Russell had today would be tolerably tough. But with an unmartingale manner, she threw up her head. He threw up her head with a lofty disdain and told her story again and again. Miss Russell, who is very tall, angular, and thin, with a lofty forehead and pale blue eyes, is extremely trim in her manner and holds her mouth as though prisms and prunes were its most frequent utterances. As she took the oath, Lizzie hitched her chair up closer to Brother Adams, removed her coat, and gave her a look. Miss Russell retold her story from the preliminary hearing, tapping her black fan against the railing for emphasis. She gave a detailed account of Lizzie's visit the Wednesday night before the murders, where Lizzie told of poison and enemies and her postponed trip to Marion. The courtroom heard how the young woman, how the young woman felt as though something is hanging over me that I can't throw off. She repeated Lizzie's story of the Marion girls asking her why she didn't join in with the conversation and how her father had mistreated Dr. Bowen when he called to check on the family that morning. Thursday's events were told as reported earlier in this book. Miss Russell saw the policeman force the hook from Lizzie's bedroom door. She tried to loosen Lizzie's dress blouse in the dining room when she thought Lizzie was heated, but Lizzie said, I am not faint, and, stay, and stayed her hand. She went with Lizzie to her room and was immediately sent to tell Dr. Bowen to ask for Winward for the funeral services. She saw Lizzie come out of Emma's room, tying a pink wrapper. She and Lizzie took the slot pail of the cellar that night, and she was unaware that Lizzie returned a few minutes later alone. It is here that Alice, Alice falters as Mr. Moody asks if they went straight upstairs after their return from the cellar. Alice keeps saying, I don't know. Still, I don't know. That they went straight upstairs after arriving on the first floor from the cellar. The author's thoughts on this were often earlier. It was a strange confession to make on Miss Russell's part. Alice tells of the dress burning and the confessing to Detective Hanscom about it. When Mr. Moody asked her if she mentioned the dress burning at the inquest or preliminary hearing, she admits she did not. Miss Russell was asked if she heard about the note Abby was, was to have received that day as to, as to the search made for it. She answered that Dr. Bowen had come to the dining room and asked Lizzie if she knew where it could be. He had looked all over and in the wastebasket. Alice said she volunteered that Abby probably burned it, and Lizzie readily agreed that must be what happened to it. She went on to say that she did not see Lizzie cry or faint. She saw no blood on her clothing, hair or hands. The searches were gone over and how Miss Russell saw a small bundle on the floor of Emma's closet as the police pushed against it with a door. Alice's last moments on the stand were taken up with the detailed information of where Lizzie stood in the kitchen as she burned the dress the Sunday morning after the murders. Alice was asked to mark an undoubted diagram where Lizzie stood at the stove and where the cupboard was that held the torn pieces of dress. She did so, and it was shown to the jury. Mr. Moody, what was that cupboard used for? What was its use? Alice, as near as I remember, there was coal and wood kept in the closet, and on the other shelves I remember seeing flat irons. That is all I remember. There were kitchen utensils. With that, Alice was released. She avoided looking at the defense table and walking round rod straight, exited the courtroom and Lizzie's life. Next witness, John Cunningham. 
John Cunningham, the news dealer who found himself thrown in the center of the murder case of a lifetime, testified next. His story was the same as he reported in the preliminary hearing. Only when he spoke of looking through the grass on the south side of the house for clues and finding no one and walked there, did a ripple go through the courtroom. As Joseph Howard aptly put it, a new dealer testified that he carefully examined the grass about the Borden house immediately after the tragedy, but could not discover any footprints, which is unfortunate. For the reputation of his eyesight, as both Bridget and Mr. Morris had been out there in the morning. Officer George W. Allen Mr. Allen was the first policeman to show up that fateful Thursday morning. He testified as he had earlier. He saw Mr. Borden before the sheet had been called for to cover him. He checked the first floor closets for a murderer, saw Lizzie, and said she was not crying. Deputized Charles Sawyer to stand guard at the door, went to the station to inform the marshal of what he found, returned with Officer Moley, and saw Mrs. Borden dead upstairs, saw a bloody handkerchief between her feet and the window. Parentheses, it was probably moved when the doctor straightened it. In parentheses. He saw no blood on the furnishings of the sitting room, other than the sofa. He went away shortly before noon after his second visit to the house. Officer Francis H. Wixon. Joseph Howard described Officer Wixon as a chiefy deputy sheriff who told of frightful wounds on, bo on the bodies and, contrast and contrasted the thinness of the blood on Mr. Borden with that of Mrs. Borden. His idea was to prove that the woman was killed long before the man. This inference he was asked to give as an opinion. And after a long argument between the learned brothers, having come to a conclusion that they would hear it, directed the witness to give it, whereupon he promptly replied, I have none. The courtroom laughed, and the cow mooed. Assistant Marshal John Fleet Mr. Fleet's testimony has been entered before. He kept to the story of his arrival that day, his two conversations with Lizzie in her room, underscoring her acerbic statement. She is not my mother. She is my stepmother. He spoke of seeing Officer Medley in, in the side yard as he arrived that day and of going to the cellar twice. On his first visit, he found officers divine and Molly. There were two hatchets and two axes laying on the washroom floor. He picked up the claw-head hatchet and studied it. It stood out to him due to its sharpness, a few stains that could be blood, and that it looked as if it had been freshly washed and wiped down. He hid it in the in, in the keeping cellar next to the washroom behind some barrels to make sure nothing happened to it. During his second trip to the cellar, he found the same policeman there, along with Dr. Dolan. He asked Officer Molly to show him where the hatchets and axes had been found. Molly took him to the middle cellar where the wood was stored and pointed out the box the hatchets had been in. Mr. Fleet was shown the two axes and hatchets and asked if they looked like the ones he saw that day. He said they did. He was asked if the spot of blood he thought he saw on the cloth head hatchet was still there. He said he did not see it now. Mr. Fleet was then asked to describe in detail what happened after Officer Moley showed him the box where the two hatchets had been found. Fleet, in the middle cellar on a shelf, or a jog of the chimney, an old-fashioned chimney, I found the head of a hatchet. It was in a box, I should say about a foot or 14 inches long, perhaps 8 or 10 inches wide. It might be a little larger, and I should say about four inches deep. There were some other tools and pieces of iron. He has shown the hatchet head and asked if that is the one he saw. Fleet, this looks like the hatchet I found there. 
pretty sure that, that that's the one. This piece of wood was in the head of the hatchet, broken off close. It was covered with white ashes. I should say upon the blade of the hatchet, not upon one side, but upon both. The other tools in the box had dust upon them. It was a light dust. That is, the dust on the other tools was lighter and finer than the dust upon the hatchet. The piece of the handle that had a new break. The piece of the handle had a new break. There seemed to be ashes on the break as well. I put it back in the box, looked around the cellar, and went outside. Mr. Fleet testified to his searching Lizzie's room on the day of the murders with Officer Minahan, who was at the time of the Superior Court deceased, and Officer Wixon. He stated Lizzie's unhappiness to see them there, and about her telling them it was a waste of time to look in her room, as she always kept the door locked and no one could get in or throw anything in. He described the searches of Saturday in particular, and, in particular, the search of the dress closet at the end of the second floor hallway. Mr. Fleet had a hard time remembering if there had been a white cloth hanging over the dresses as he testified at the preliminary hearing. He now said he thought not, about them being covered. Mr. Robinson asked Mr. Fleet if he saw any paint on any of the dresses. When Mr. Fleet says he did not, Robinson said, Would you have seen any blood the way you looked? referring to Fleet, saying he did not do a careful search of the dresses on Thursday, the day of the murders. Mr. Fleet answered, Not without it was on the outside, right before my eyes. I didn't look at them closely. Governor Robinson had made his point. Lizzie's paint-stained dress could have been hanging there, and the men missed it. The double-edged sword here is it also meant they could have missed one with bloodstains. Governor Robinson closed for the day with the with the question, were you looking for a man in that clothing? Fleet answered, if he was there, yes we were. Robinson shot back that the door to the closet was locked and required a key to get into it. At 5 p.m. the court was adjourned to Friday, June 9th at 9 a.m. Chapter 32, The Superior Court Trial, Day 5. The saga of the hatchet head is, compelling, is a compelling one. It became the ugly stepchild as the trial progressed. Bridget distanced herself from the hatches completely, still cognizant that, should Lizzie be found not guilty, the fickle wheels of suspicion could roll her way. There were only two people home that day who could have committed the murders, and she was one of them. Assistant Marshal Fleet, with a self-important attitude, had taken the credit for finding the handleless hatchet on the day of the murder, eager to claim the spotlight for the weapon, now being granted the likely candidate for the murders. The clawhead hatchet, the favorite star of the preliminary hearings, had been thrown out due to the fact its five-inch white blade, his five-inch wide blade was too broad to have done the deed. Fleet leaped completely over Officer Molly's part in showing him the box where the hatchets had been found, and that both men discovered the hatchet head at the same time. Mr. Fleet came to rue the fact that he had taken full credit for his discovery that grisly morning. Day five of the Superior Court trial began with the recalling of Fleet to the stand to continue his testimony. Obviously, during the night, he had realized an error he made in the previous day's testimony, where a member of the prosecution firmly pointed it out. It was time to do damage control. Governor Robinson had other plans. Robinson, were there any ashes there in the middle room or the cellar where the hatchet head was found? Fleet, there was in the middle cellar. Robinson, where you found the box? Fleet, yes, the box with the hatchets in it. There might be six bushels of ashes within a few feet of the chimney. Robinson, 
so that the pile of ashes was right near, within a few feet of that chimney where the box was, in which these, these hatchets were found, and in which you found that one without a handle. Is that right? Please. Yes, they were coal ashes. Fleet. Yes, they were coal. Sorry about that. Robinson, showing hatchet without a head. When did you find that? Fleet. The afternoon of the 4th of August, the second visit to the cellar. Robinson, why didn't you tell me before when you went on to tell about the second visit? Why didn't you tell me that you found this? Fleet. You didn't ask me. Robinson. I didn't ask you. You didn't know that I was trying to find out all you did in the cellar at each of these times down there? You didn't understand that, did you? Fleet, I have already stated when and where I found that. Robinson, who who was there when you found this? Fleet, Officer Mullally. Robinson, Mr. Mullally, you said, stood right by? Parentheses, when Fleet found the hatchet. Whoa, 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 that just flipped on me. Hang on. <laughs> I love it. Okay. When Fleet found the hatchet head in the box, yeah, parenthesis, when Fleet found the hatchet head in the box, okay, Fleet, he was there and showed me the box where the hatchets was taken from. Robinson, did you take it out in his presence? Fleet, I don't recollect whether he saw me take it out or not. He may have done so. Robinson, had you noticed whether either of the two hatchets were covered with ashes? Fleet, the smaller one was somewhat dusty. Robinson, how about this one, the claw head? Fleet, that one had apparently been cleansed. It looked damp. The hatchet looked to me bluer than it does now, and there was one red spot upon the blade. I think it was rust. Robinson, did you take out the other tools that were in the box? Fleet, I did not. Robinson, did you see whether they were dusty or not? Fleet, they were dusty. Some dust on them. Robinson, was there any dust on this one? The one without a handle? Fleet, there was, all over it. It looked as if it might have fell into that ash barrel. Robinson, and that little piece of the handle was on there at the time, wasn't it? Parentheses, the small piece that fit on the eye of the hatchet had been taken out by Professor Wood to look for blood. In the parentheses, Fleet, yes. Robinson, parentheses, about to spring the trap. And that the end, <clears throat> and that the end there had ashes on it, just the same way as it indicates now? Fleet, not so much as it had on the other end, end here. Robinson, which end do you mean? Fleet, this piece here was new, apparently a new break. He was indicating the end of the broken hatchet and handle where the break was. Robinson, had ashes on it, hadn't it? Fleet, I didn't notice any ashes on the new break. Robinson, now, what did you do with that after bringing it out of the box? Fleet, I didn't bring it out. Robinson, what did you do with it? Fleet, and let it remain in the box after looking at it. Robinson, you didn't take it along with you? Fleet, I did not. Robinson, did you show it to Mr. Mullally? Was Mr. Mullally there? Fleet, he was there. Robinson, did you show it to Mr. Mullally? Fleet, I can't say that I did. I think I did. I think he saw it. Robinson, did he see you put it back in the box? Fleet, I presume that he did, sir. Robinson, and you didn't take it out or lay it and lay it down with these others. Please, no, sir. Robinson, you went off and left this in the old ashy box just as you found it, did you? Fleet, yes. In parentheses, Mr. Fleet is against the ropes. He has just contradicted his testimony from the day before that he saw ashes on the end of the handle where the new brick was seen. 
If the ashes were found on the part of the handle piece, it would show that Lizzie did not just break it, break it the morning of the murders to make it look as if it could not have been used as a murder weapon. Ashes on the break would make it appear dusty and used like the other tools in the box. Lee realizes it now and changes his testimony to say he saw no dust on the broken edge. Robinson catches him. Is it a lie? He asks Fleet what he did with the hatchet head after bringing it out of the box. Fleet replies, I didn't bring it out. How could Fleet have known the hatchet head was coated with ashes on both sides without removing it to look at it? Robinson catches him up again by asking if Molly saw him put, put it back in the box. Fleet says, I presume he did. Okay. He then asks Fleet, okay, Fleet's testimony was a mess. And it was about to explode in his face when Officer Molly takes the stand later that day. The officer he just tried to show did or did not witness his actions with the hatchet head. Robinson then goes in for the kill. Robinson, well, do you say this morning, having it called to your attention that there were no ashes on the broken end of that at that time? Wait, not that I discovered. Robinson, will you swear they were not there? Fleet, no, I couldn't really do that. Robinson, you don't really do that? Fleet, no, sir. Robinson, what did you say yesterday about ashes on the end? Fleet, I don't know that I said anything yesterday about ashes on that end. I said that the hatchet was all covered with dust. Robinson, do you remember being asked by Mr. Moody yesterday? At the time, did you observe anything with reference to ashes upon the point of the break of the handle? Upon the wood where it was broken? And you, and you answered, there seemed to be ashes there like the other? Fleet, I might have said that, yes, sir. Robinson, were you telling it as it was yesterday or as you tell it now this morning? Fleet, I tell it this morning just as I saw it. Robinson, then you didn't tell it yesterday as you saw it. Fleet, well, I suppose I did yesterday as I thought. I may have misunderstood about the break. I understand this was a new break. After much badgering from Robinson and many disclaimers from Mr. Fleet, the final answer was arrived upon. Robinson, I know you keep saying that that it was a new break, but I am after the ashes on the break. Now, which one of those answers will you take, or do you want to make another one? Fleet, no, sir. I will take the answer, this answer, that I didn't discover or didn't notice any ashes upon the break. Robinson, that is this morning's statement? Fleet, yes, while there might have been ashes on there. Robinson yelling. Oh, are you going to put that in? The clunk sound in the room that may have been Attorney Knowlton's forehead hitting the prosecution table. Fleet's testimony was a disaster. Robinson, giving up having made his point. Do you know who took it away from the place where you put it? Fleet, only as I have heard, Officer Midley, it was in possession of the marshal. Governor Robinson goes on to trap Fleet again by reminding him that in his preliminary hearing testimony, Fleet said he found no other weapon in the cellar other than the four laying on the cellar floor. He did not mention finding the handleless hatchet at all. Fleet dances around it, saying he didn't think it came into play. With that, a humiliated assistant marshal stepped down from the stand. His feelings of embarrassment and anger would pale compared to what was coming later. Officer Phil Harrington Officer Harrington retold his story from the preliminary hearing offered earlier in the book. 
He had questioned Lizzie and found her answer so unusual that he had cautioned her to wait until the next day to submit any more inquiries. She had curtsied and said she could answer them just as well at that time. He said she was never in tears and described her attitude as cool. Harrington recites his amazingly detailed description of Lizzie's pink wrapper. The smiles went through the gallery, and Mr. Moody couldn't resist asking at the end of it, That finishes it, does it? Even Lizzie smiled and laughed softly. Harrington then told of seeing Dr. Bowen reading a torn note with the word Emma written in the top left corner, stating it was only something about my daughter going through somewhere, and then watching as the doctor tossed the scraps of paper into the stove fire. At that time, Harrington said he noticed a roll of burned paper softly. Harrington then told of seeing Dr. Bowen reading a torn note with the word Emma written in the top left corner, stating it was only something... I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. It flipped on me. I apologize. So inside the stove. At that point, Dr. Dolan entered the kitchen with two or three cans in his hands and three hatchets. He called Harrington over to stand guard over the cans. Fleet then sent him off on an errand. After returning, he joined the others in searching the barn. He testified the barn was very hot, suffocating with considerable dust. Harrington then searched the yards, flanking the barn's property, and spoke with people there. He found no weapon and no marks of blood of any kind. Mr. Robinson, during his cross-examination of Officer Harrington, elicits the information that Lizzie and her father had returned from the post office that morning, and she asked him, Any mail for me? And, and, she, and she said he replied no. Parentheses, Bridget said she did not hear Andrew answer Lizzie about mail. Robinson then asked Officer Harrington if he noticed what shoes Andrew had on that morning. Harrington, he had a lace shoe. Robinson, do you mean a low shoe? Hoping to show that Andrew had changed into slippers with Lizzie's help, just as Lizzie said. Harrington, no, sir. Robinson, a lace high shoe? It was not a Congress boot? Harrington, no, sir. Robinson then shows him the photograph of Andrew Lane dead on the sofa wearing Congress boots. Robinson, seeing this photo. Robinson, seeing this photo, having this to refresh your recollection, do you change your statement? Harrington, no, sir. Robinson, you leave it that he had on lace boots. Harrington, my impression was lace boots. After a few more questions into the cellar and barn, Officer Harrington stood down. The man who could describe a woman's pink wrapper in such detail that a rival that of any fashion diva could not recall the shoes a man had on. So far, it had not been a batter day for the police. Officer Patrick H. Doherty. Next up was Officer Doherty, the gentleman who became closest to Bridget Sullivan, as he escorted her to and from the inquest and made sure she was guarded at her relative's residence on Division Street during the preliminary hearing. Perhaps their Irish heritage made them kindred spirits. Doherty went over the day's events, from his arrival until his departure. He testified Lizzie had told him she had been in the barn and heard a scraping noise. She told the officer Mr. Eddie and Mr. Johnson from the Swansea Farms would never hurt her father and that Mr. Eddie is sick. Officer Doherty said he went. He later went up to her room and opened the door a few inches to enter. She stopped him and said one minute and shut the door in his face. A full minute or two later she opened it and he went in and looked around. Miss Russell was there. Doherty was asked by Mr. Moody to describe the dress Lizzie was wearing downstairs when he first interviewed her in the kitchen. Doherty. When I saw her downstairs, I thought she had a light blue dress with a, 
bosom in the waist, or something like a bosom. I have faint recollection. That is all I can say about it. I thought she had a light blue dress. I thought there was a small figure on the dress, a little spot like a little spot like Moody showing Doherty the dress Lizzie turned in. Was it this dress? Doherty, no, I don't think so. The dress with the bosom. Okay, never mind. That's the captions kind of run into the text, so you gotta bear with me. Officer Doherty states that he did not get to look in Emma's room during the time he went into Lizzie's room after she closed the door on him. The door to Emma's room was locked, and Lizzie hurried and locked it before letting him in, perhaps telling a confused Ellis Russell who was sitting there something like, Emma would not want the strange men in her room. We do know that the first team to search the room found Emma's door open, but only peeked in. Was it because of the bundle on Emma's shelf that may have contained the torn sleeves in him from Lizzie's Bedford cord? Was it that she had temporarily hung the blue dress she had been wearing all day there, as she slipped into the pink wrapper. It is strange that the door was unlocked one minute and locked later. Officer Dory stated he saw Lizzie the next day on Friday, and she was wearing the same light blue dress as the day before. He had been on guard duty at the house all night, beginning at 1 a.m. At 6 the next morning, Friday morning, he watched Officer Edson take away the four hatchets and axes. He was also in the kitchen when Lizzie entered and asked Bridget if she was sure the cellar door had been locked the morning before. Bridget answered, yes, ma'am. Doherty said Bridget was wearing a dark calico, possibly brown. Doherty told the court the only search he joined in was the day of the murder, including the barn, which he called stifling hot. He did not search on Friday, Saturday, or Monday. Next witness, Officer Michael Mowley. The 20th witness to take the stand was Officer Michael Mowley. Mr. Mullally would turn out to be the case's most sensational witness, next to Alice Russell and Professor Wood. Yet, of all the police officials that worked on the Borden case, he was the only one not to be advanced in rank. Some of the men were promoted the very day after the murders. Officer Mullally's police report, called the witness statements, is also curiously missing. Could this all be due to what was about to happen in that stuffy courtroom on Friday, June 9th, 1893? Mr. Moody opened the questioning of, Do- of, of Officer Moley by asking him how long he'd been a policeman with the Fall River Police. He answered, 15 years. Moody, and your position in the force is what? Moley, patrolman. Moody, it was last August, was it? Moley, yes. Yes, sir. Was Mr. Moody underlined that Officer Moley, I hate when that happens, updates, uh, had not been promoted as, as the other officers? The day of the murders, Officer Molly had arrived at the Bordens at 23 minutes to 12. He first spoke to Lizzie when he, stru- when he stuck his head into the dining room and asked her if she knew what personal effects her father might have on him. She answered him, a silver watch and chain, a pocketbook with money in it, and a gold ring on his little finger. He then asked her if she knew if there was a hatchet or axe on the premises. She said there was, and Bridget would show him where they were. Before they went to the cellar where the hatchets were, he, Doherty, and Bridget searched the attic area, finding nothing of interest. Officer Molly, along with Bridget and Officer Doherty, went to the cellar. He stated the following. Molly. Bridget led the way. She went into the cellar there, and she took from a box two hatchets. A ripple went through the room. Bridget had claimed emphatically during her time on the stand she did not touch the hatchets. Molly. She reached up and took them out, 
and gave them to me. She had to reach up and didn't have to stand on anything to get it. I took them out into what I call the washroom and laid them on the floor, and I stayed there with them until Mr. Fleet came. The axe handles were covered with ashes at that time. I called Mr. Fleet's attention to them when he came. He looked at them, parentheses, laying on the wash cellar floor. Officer Moley said he then went upstairs and out into the yard and searched the yard, the woodpile, the barn, and fences, all around the back and into the house again. He went into the guest room with Officer Hyde and searched around in there where Abby lay dead. He then went back down to the cellar. Officer Hyde went with him. He searched around the cellar again and did not find anything. Officer Fleet then came down again. Mr. Moody then leads Molly carefully into what happened after Fleet spoke to him. Moody, what did you do after Mr. Fleet spoke to you? Molly, I showed him where the hatchets were taken from. Moody, what did you show? Molly, I showed him a box where Bridget had taken them from. Moody, what did you do after you showed him the box? Molly, he took a hatchet out of there and showed it. looked to me as if it was smaller than, than one of them than one of them, indicating the floor on display. The handle was broken, and he put it back, and it was covered with dust or ashes, or something like that. It had a clean break. It looked fresh, as if just broken. Moody, how did that, the break, in respect to the dust and ashes, compare with the size of the hatchet? How did the freshly broken wood in respect of dust and ashes compare with the size of the hatchet? Moldy, it was cleaner, the hatchet, it was cleaner, that hatchet, a noon recess was called, bringing a welcome yet anticlimactic end of the morning's testimonies of hatchets and ashes. The newspapers reported that Lizzie looked wilted and pale. The noise outside the open windows of the courtroom room was reported as unrelenting. Stonemasons chipping away, horse and buggy traffic, birds singing, and the unhappy Bessie moving in the background. When the court reconvened at 2.15, the judges in the gallery looked refreshed. Lunch had been served, and the weekend lay only a few hours ahead. For Lizzie, the thought of a bed, even one shadow with bars, must have seemed like a welcome reprieve to the grueling week. Officer Moley stepped back on the stand and waited for Mr. Moody to begin. Moody, Mr. Moley, you had been describing the appearance of the hatchet without a handle. Was there anything you noticed with reference with it? Moley, the handle was broken fresh. Both sides of the blade was covered with what I call ashes. It looked so as though it was rubbed on there, wiped on, would be my way of expressing it. Moody, what did Mr. Fleet do with it after each of you had observed it? Molly, I believe he put it back. Moody, did you see the, did you see the hatchet again afterwards? Molly, not in the house. Where, Moody, wherever you saw it, if you saw it at all, you saw it after it was taken away from the house? Molly, yes, sir. Moody, then where did you go? Molly, then went upstairs to, to this room where Mrs. Borden lay. Officer Hyde and myself searched it, and there I saw Miss Borden, and I had some conversation with her there. I inquired of her whether she saw somebody around the premises, and she told me she did. She said she saw a man around there with dark clothes on. She said he was a man of about the size of Officer Hyde, or about as large as Officer Hyde. I then went to the attic with Mr. Fleet and searched. Then I went to the yard over the fence into the Kelly's yard. I didn't find any whipping or appearance of blood. Molly's final statements concerning the hatchets was that the box from which Bridget retrieved them was up high and without a lid. Excuse me. 
He had not looked at it. We really accepted, we really accepted the two hashes from her. Governor Robinson hefted himself from his chair and adjusted his glasses importantly. Fans fluttered throughout the courtroom. An occasional cough broke the momentary silence, and Lizzie waited. If Alfred Hitchcock had scripted the suspense surrounding the following testimony, he would not have improved upon it. Robinson, were you looking yourself, helping him, Mr. Fleet, to find anything in the cellar? Molly, he came down in the cellar and asked me where Sullivan got these hatchets from, and I showed him. Robinson, in that same box? Molly, in the same box. Robinson, and then he looked in the box. Molly, he went there and he took it out. Robinson, and you had not been there to look before? Molly, no, I had been there to look in the box. Robinson, nothing else was taken out of it while you were there? Molly, nothing but the hatchet and parts of the handle. Robinson, dismissively, well, parts, that piece, indicating the little piece that was in the eye of the fresh break on the end? Molly, that piece, yes. Robinson, well, that was in the eye, wasn't it? Molly, yes. Then there was another piece. Robinson, another piece of what? Molly, handle. A collective gasp filled the room. The governor stared at the officer on the stand as if he had just sprouted tentacles. Even the judge's head swiveled in the, witness in the witness's direction. Three incredible faces turning in unison. The cow moved for emphasis. But this time, no one laughed. Mr. Robinson composed himself and thundered. Where is it? Molly, I don't know. Robinson, don't you know where it is? Molly, no, sir. Robinson, was it a piece of that same handle? Molly, it was a piece that corresponded with that. Robinson, the rest of the handle? Molly, it was a piece with a fresh break in it. Robinson, the other piece? Molly, yes, sir. Robinson, well, where is it? Did you see it after that? Molly, I did not. Robinson, well, did you take it out of the box? Molly, I did not. Robinson, did you see it taken out? Molly, I did. Robinson, who took it out? Molly, Mr. Fleet took it out. The courtroom was electric. The buzz of whispers filled the air, and once again, Governor Robinson struggled to rebound from the shock. Robinson, Mr. Fleet took it out? He finally managed. Molly, yes, sir. Robinson, you were there? Molly, I was there. Robinson, anybody else? Molly, not as I know. Robinson, did Mr. Fleet put it back, put that back too? Molly, he did. With an expansive breath that threatened to pop the shirt's button string against the governor's barrel chest, he turned, to his, he turned his reddened face to the prosecution table. Robinson, have you that handle here, gentlemen? Knowlton, no. Was only the attorney could muster. Robinson, you haven't? You haven't it in your possession, may I ask for? Knowlton, never had it. Robinson, the government does not know where it, where it is? Obviously convinced a cover-up is going on. Knowlton, with obvious humiliation, I don't know where it is. This is the first I ever heard of it. The courtroom erupted in excited whispers. The tension between the opposing attorneys was palpable. Robinson whirled on his, whirled on his heel and faced a nervous Michael Moley. Robinson, did you ever tell anybody about this before, he barked. Moley, no, sir, never did. Robinson, do you know where Mr. Fleet is now, this minute? Moley, I do not. I saw him downstairs before the adjournment. Robinson, that is all. I would like to have Mr. Fleet come in. 
I would like to have him sent for. Knowlton, we were proposing to do it. Mr. Moody, Mr. Officer, call Mr. Fleet. Robinson, I would like to have the witness, this witness Molly in the room until Mr. Fleet comes. He need not stay on the stand. Moody, you may take a seat in that room. Moody, you may take a seat in that room, pointing to the rear. Do, you, do not leave that room or that seat. Michael Moley stepped down. It was impossible to ignore the sensation his testimony had brought to the courtroom. What was he feeling? Had he been told to lie about the hatchet handle? Fleet was the assistant marshal, his superior. Had Officer Molly refused to lie under oath, and for that noble decision had been passed over for a promotion, and, and his police report of his actions that day destroyed. Perhaps there was a small sense of vindication, and not a, not a little fear, as to what would happen to him back in Fall River. Assistant Marshal John Fleet entered the room. The looks on the faces of the spectators and the prosecution may have been a tip-off that something had gone wrong. Robinson wasted no time. Once the cocky officer was seated on the stand, Robinson, Mr. Fleet, returning, returning to the subject we had in our discussion this morning about what you found in that box downstairs. You know, the box by the chimney? Fleet, yes, sir. Robinson, will you state again what you found there at the time you looked in? Everyone was perched on the edge of their seats. The incessant fluttering of fans was stilled as the people crammed into that small room, waiting for his reply. Fleet, looking none too happy, but keeping the haughty expression firmly in place, I found a hatchet head and handle broken off, together with some other tools in there, and the iron that was inside there. I don't know just what it was. Robinson, showing hatchet. Was this what you found? Fleet, yes, sir. Robinson, did you find anything else except old tools? Fleet, no, sir. Robinson, sure about that? Fleet, yes, sir. Robinson, you did not find the handle, the broken piece, not at all? Fleet, no, sir. Robinson, did you not, you did not see it, did you? Fleet, no, sir. Robinson, did Molly take it out of the box? Fleet, not that I know of. Robinson, you looked in so that you could have seen it if it was in there. Fleet, yes, sir. Robinson, there was no hatchet handle belonging to that picked up right there, or any piece of wood besides that that had any fresh break in it. Fleet, not that came from the hatchet. Robinson, or in that box anyway, or around there anywhere. Fleet, no sir, not that I am aware of. I did not see any of it. Assistant Marshal Fleet was excused amid the whispered excitement of the crowd. Attorneys' heads from both tables bowed and conversed in urgent undertones. After several minutes, Officer Charles Wilson was called to the stand. His testimony was mundane and anticlimactic. It was clear both sides of this case only wanted his information on the record, as their heads were still whir whirling from the previous testimony given by Fleet and Molly. After some cursory questions about Mr. Wilson helping Mr. Fleet search the dress closet, and his, his look around Lizzie's room, shortly after Lizzie admitted he had Fleet, admitted he had Fleet inside, he was dismissed. Before Mr. Wilson's back had barely exited the courtroom door, Mr. Knowlton was on his feet. Knowlton, if your honors please, I think that it's important that an investigation should be had to see whether that piece of wood that had been described in Mr. Moley is still in that box. In order that it be done with entire fairness, I ask that somebody be, be designated to go over with an officer to do it. I make this motion with no other interest than that of justice. Robinson, justice is what we want, he said, acerbically. Knowlton, you object to the appointment of an officer for that purpose? Judge Mason, the court cannot interfere with the preparation of the case. 
Mr. Moody. Miss Annie M. White will take the stand. Basically, Judge Mason had told Mr. Knowlton, you made your ash pile, you lay in it. The newspapers lapped up the day's events like a starving cat. Their headlines screamed about what had been nicknamed the hoodoo hatchet. The unfolding case was the stuff from which journalistic dreams are made. Miss Annie White. She was described as stout, pleasant-looking, and mild. She carried with her a folder of papers. Her time on the stand was short-lived. Moody, were you present at a proceeding at Fall River sometime in August of last year? White, yes. Moody, I'm referring to... I'm referring now to August 9th. Did you see Miss Lizzie Borden? White, I did. Moody, and Mr. Knowlton? White, yes. Moody, in what room were you in? White, in the district courtroom in Fall River. Moody, who was there besides those with whom you have named? White, Judge Blaisdell. Mr. Leonard, the clerk of the court, and Dr. Dolan and Mr. Seaver was there part of the time, and Marshal Hilliard was there all the time, and there was one or two persons came in that I didn't know, strangers. Moody. Now, was there some conversation between Mr. Knowlton and Miss Borden at this time? Mr. Robinson. Wait right there. And with that, Miss White's testimony ended. Governor Robinson said the point he needed to make should be outside the jury's hearing and deferred until the next morning. Robinson. Now the court, I have no doubt, have anticipated this question, which was likely to arise. The judges confirmed it in, whister, confirmed in whispers and agreed to have the matter heard without the jury present. Miss White was excused. The issue in question was the eligibility of the introduction of Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony. Her defense attorneys were emphatic that it was inadmissible due to the violation of her rights at the time she was subpoenaed to appear in court. Miss White had with her a copy of the stenographic record she took the day of Lizzie's testimony and was prepared to read it in court in front of the jury. It would be a hotly debated item that would take up a good portion of the following Monday, June 12th. Okay, guys, I'm going to stop there. I've been on an hour. Um, hope you like the book. I like the book. There's, boy, there's a lot of stuff coming up in here. Who would have figured, right? The missing piece of the hatchet handle. Pretty crazy. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for listening tonight. I apologize. Haven't heard from the guests, so something must have happened. Um, but tomorrow, <laughs> we're guaranteed the show. Uh, Sandale's going to be with us. Uh, Sandale's been on the show before, uh, talking about his what he believes, he, how he believes he discovered Atlantis in the Garden of Eden. So it's going to be fair. It was a really interesting show the last time he was on. It should be a really interesting show tomorrow because he's got some updates to talk to us about. So that'll be at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, just like just like this show. And uh, like I said, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you despise the show, share it with five people. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. If you are watching uh, from Facebook and you like the show, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from uh, Twitter and you like the show, Please hit the subscribe button on YouTube. Okay, it's that little ghost at the bottom. Hang on, let me do this. Okay, it's that little ghost at the bottom right-hand corner with the magnifying glass, the Sherlock Holmes hat. And again, if you're watching from YouTube, please do the same thing. Get alerts to, you know, when the shows are going to be on and all that good stuff. And if you're watching from Twitch, please follow. Again, I want to thank everybody for coming. And you can visit us at CaliforniaHots.org and CaliforniaHotsRadio.com. 
And uh, you see that ticker down at the bottom. That's because California Haunts uh, doesn't take any money to investigate. You know, we are, we're out simply to help people and educate. But there are costs to running the show and running the paranormal team. And I'm the one that has to take on all those costs. And uh, that includes internet fees and everything else. And uh, I could use a little help to keep things going, especially to keep the show going. The show, you know, I, I love doing this show. It's it's my thing. And uh, yeah. So if you could maybe send a little bit to help me pay for pay for the internet fees and stuff, that would be great at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, there's a, I have a Venmo at a Venmo and just type in California Haunts when you get to Venmo and you can do it from there. Anyway, I appreciate each and every one of you for coming tonight. And uh, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Thank you so much. And I hope you're enjoying Lizzie Borden book. And I hope you're learning a little bit because there's stuff in here that I didn't even know about. So it's kind of cool. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night.